You're listening to the Live Free Now podcast, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Find us online at livefreenow.show. And now your host, John Bush. Welcome, welcome to another exciting edition of the Live Free Now show, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Today, we have a very special guest. We're going to be talking with Julianne Romanello about the Great Reset and technocracy, which are some topics that we've been covering on the show But I think what she really has that's special to add to the conversation is the how, the nuts and bolts, and the mechanisms that are being leveraged in order to bring about this great shift, this great reset at the local level. She was an assistant college professor at Tulsa University and saw the changes that were taking place with the programs and the terminology and the role tax-exempt foundations played in all of it. So I think she has a unique perspective, not only on how it's being rolled out at the local or regional level, but also how the technocrats are using the education system, not just college and the secondary school, but all the way down to preschools and how they're kind of uh, shaping the children so they can fill future positions in the fourth industrial revolution. I think it's going to be a really, really insightful discussion, and we'll also be sure to talk about how we can overcome this, how we can disrupt this agenda. I want to remind you to subscribe to the podcast at livefreenow.show, livefreenow.show. If you're watching us now, you're watching on YouTube or Facebook, and the Conscious Resistance Network just got banned from YouTube. My channel could get banned from YouTube, so we want to continue to connect with you share this information, share these solutions and strategies. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast. Again, that's at livefreenow.show. Without further ado, let's bring on Julianne to uh, start the discussion. How are you today? I'm fine. How are you? I'm great. I'm loving life and (laughs) I've been obsessively researching the Great Reset and all. I got the COVID-19 Great Reset book and everything. I'm diving into that. So I'm really excited to to get with you on this topic. Um, Yeah, there's so much there. Yeah, it's a whole lot to unpack. Maybe you could just start by introducing yourself to the listeners and share uh, some of your background and, and when you first learned about this whole agenda. Sure. Well, my name is Julianne Romanillo, and I have been um, teaching at the University of Tulsa. I've been an adjunct off and on for many years. Um, I have four kids, so that's why I'm, you know, I've taught at several institutions as an adjunct, but I was teaching full-time at the University of Tulsa in their honors program, which is a great books program. It's, you know, the Western tradition, we throw in, you know, other traditions as well, but primarily we focus on the West and great books. And, you know, in 2019, in the spring, I was at the university teaching full-time when they announced a restructure called True Commitment. And uh, part of that restructure was really to get the liberal arts. And I just couldn't, I couldn't believe why anyone would want to destroy like a great university that had a strong tradition in the liberal arts and, and also in engineering and um, business and law, uh, 
you know, it's our city's namesake university. So, so I started to dig and just, just to understand it. And I happened upon a, a huge world that is, that I would describe as technocracy um, of surveillance of ed tech learning technologies of anchor institutions and um, change makers for social impact programs. Wow. And so you kind of realized, did you, were you already aware of this whole global governance agenda, technocratic agenda, and then you recognize the terminology or was it this shift and this kind of new language I heard you mention in a mm-hmm. previous interview that caused you to then go look into what, what the heck was going on? No, I was completely naive. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, like I said, I have four kids and I taught political philosophy. So really, you know, I was busy just with being a mom and then reading my books. So I, I had no clue about what was going on in, you know, in our public schools and schools in general. My kids are young, so I hadn't paid a lot of attention. But what I did notice was that the language that the university administration was using was really ugly, crass language. You know, it sounded like uh, like doublespeak, which in a way that seems so unbelievable that you wouldn't, you know, you would think that someone was just being um, ignorant or clumsy or, you know, just reverting to buzzwords. But, you know, I thought, I'm just going to look up some of these phrases like education reimagined and it was all over the place. And, you know, I think people who are in, who are immersed in the corporate world probably wouldn't have been as shocked by that language as I was, but because I'd been insulated from it, I didn't use social media, then it it really stood out to me. And, and then in the course of like a year and a half, I've become woke as they say. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. Well, good. It's good to have you on board. There's a lot of people that are researching and doing deep dives because there really is a pretty dramatic change taking place. It's been a slow, gradual change, but it's been accelerated since COVID-19. But that change is away from market-based economies, away from representative government, which I'm not a big fan of as an anarchist libertarian, but it would definitely be preferable to this whole technocratic, oligarchical, top-down Tech, technocracy, really. So maybe uh, we could start by you describing your understanding of the concept of technocracy. And then can you relate to how you were seeing that come to fruition in the university, the Tulsa, Tulsa University? Sure. Well, you know, I think I would point anyone who's just getting into this subject to Patrick Wood's work or mm-hmm. to Rosa Corey's work there. They have books that are accessible, that are based in real um, independent research and they're great. So if you're looking for a place to start, that's it. Um, But what technocracy is, is, you know, it's a program to take out, take all to, well, it's a risk management program and it, it tries to limit all free will, all human agency and give that to the data, data governance. So we want um, our our approach to life to be effective, efficient, outcomes-based, and we're gonna do that through 
monitoring, controlling, tracking, tracing every aspect of our lives. We're going to look at probability of, you know, and what results we can expect from, you know, any number of, of causes. And we're going to ensure that the conditions It's really like government by like the Borg, <laughs> you know, there's not really a leader. We don't, we don't have a say, certainly. Um, it's government by algorithm, arranging society through uh, programs, computer programs. Okay. My feed kind of cut out there. I don't know if it was on my end or your end, but I think the audience got most of what it was you're saying. So technocracy essentially is government through, through algorithms you're saying. And can you share how you saw some of these buzzwords and saw this starts to uh, come about at the University of, of Tulsa? And I definitely want to get in, or Tulsa University, definitely want to get into a lot of the data because you talked about the P20 pipeline and how they're collecting data on children from preschool and all the way till college and beyond. But uh, what were some of the first inklings of the technocracy uh, that you saw there at Tulsa University? Okay, so they're talking about um, reimagining education and preparing students for the workforce. And, you know, if you, and like, because TU, Tulsa University, was a liberal arts university, um, you know, it, it struck me as, as really odd that, that the entire institution would be shifting toward workforce development. I mean, that sounds very utilitarian. And, you know, I think we certainly need to, you know, be preparing people for careers. Um, you know, everyone has to eat and, and having a career is part of that. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, the primary purpose of education should be learning for its own sake, I think. Um, it should be about, you know, training yourself to become an independent, responsible thinker. Well, this was absolutely not about that. And you could tell because they were saying we want first generation college students to, you know, go into in demand fields. So I just started looking into this. Oh, and they, like you say, they use the language of pipelines and pathways, and those are all related to like Bill Gates and impact investing, which I'm sure we'll get into later but they one thing that one phrase that was constantly brought up was data driven and if you look at your mayor's uh, speeches any mayor in the country almost you're going to hear him talking about data driven uh, approaches or evidence-based or resource oriented so those are three like buzz phrases and you know what I like to say is that data-driven really means that they are motivated by data capture. So when you're preparing students for the workforce, what you're, what you're trying to do is match human capital assets, um, you know, our skill sets, our personality traits, all of those things like knowledge competencies that we might have acquired. You're trying to match those two specific job descriptions. And that that process is possible through, you know, constant 
engagement with ed technology, education technology, or with any web-based um, education platform. Like, you know, we use at Tulsa, uh, we use Blackboard, which is an Aleutian technology, and it's a core, it's a learning management system. So as a professor, I would, you know, put a sign, I would put like primary readings, I'd upload files, and I could list certain assignments and have the syllabus on there. And, you know, different professors would use it, you know, greater or um, less in their courses. But what I didn't realize, and th this was really eye-opening to me, um, all of the information that I would put in or, or communicate over that platform with individual students, say about their individual circumstances, that's that's not stored on a server that's contained at the university. You know, there there's always a back door, and you know these giant ed tech uh, corporations like Aleutian, they're gathering data about individuals. Now, I think they aggregate the data, they take off personal identifiers, but um, you know what they're doing, they're still collecting all of these data about human um, behavioral patterns. And as we move closer to having blockchain uh, blockchain digital identity, where each of us has a digital identity tag assigned at birth and um, capable of holding information about every single transaction <laughs> of our lives, you know, those, you know, Anything that I put into Blackboard about a student, say, missing class or whatever, that's going to make its way onto their human capital profile. And then that, you know, it's we're essentially building up a human credit score or a, or a human capital uh, ranking. And that's going to tell the algorithms what jobs someone should go to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember now, having... I remember having an insight with one of my high school friends who went to the University of Texas School of Public Affairs, their prestigious master's government program. And he told me about this really in-depth survey that they had him do at the onset when he was getting into the program. And it asked all of these intricate questions and all these hypotheticals. And one of them I remember was this Machiavellian ends justify the means where there has to be a sacrifice of a small group of people to save a bigger group of people. And I remember thinking conspiratorially, like, wow, if you answer that question a certain way, then you could be put into a category where perhaps we can, uh, you know, massage and cultivate you knowing that you can do some higher level stuff and, and maybe go along, go along with the program. So, that's what you're seeing now. And that with the tech improved and all of these uh, tax exempt foundations that are getting involved, I want to talk about, that's really what they're doing. And that is like the essence of technocracy, huh? It's exactly it. And so, you know, I had the joy and pleasure of teaching honors students. Um, these are excellent students, 18 year olds who loved learning. And many of them were in, um, you know, they were majoring in STEM fields. Um, what is that? STEM they, fields? What does that mean? Yeah, STEM, science, technology, education, and mathematics, which STEM okay. is actually a, a bad buzzword that really means like applied, you know, tinkerings, not engineering and like theoretical science. Okay. But most people know what that, if I say STEM, then you know that we're talking about like the natural and physical sciences. 
anyway, so I had students who were majoring in those fields, but also wanted a great liberal arts education. So really dedicated students. They were also, many of them, enrolled in a presidential leadership fellow course. Mm -hmm. And probably every university has this now. And those leadership courses are, you know, they're grooming uh, forums. So they market these classes as leadership classes, but really what they're doing is exactly what you described. They're doing um, personality profiling to see who could be a change agent or who could seed the student population. And they use that kind of language, seeding the population, or sometimes they say pollinating it. Wow. I mean, that is pretty twisted, right? I think. Yeah. But yeah, and like, it's like a means to an end. I'm thinking yeah. of that. I forget the guy's name in the free speech movement in the 70s or the 60s where he had this, that great speech where he's like, we will not be cogs in the machine. And we need to throw our bodies on the gears of the machine. That's what yeah. coming to, to mind because it's it was like that in the past. Uh, and then it was like that with the advent of the public school system to further the industrial revolution and to create you know, more obedient workers and citizens. But now it's the same thing. It's only really amplified through the use of technology and all these data solutions. And so you talked about what you call the P20 pipeline. This isn't just happening when we have mature uh, teenagers and adults, young adults. This is something that the tech industries and these investment firms and all these uh, venture capitalists are, are doing to preschoolers. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, if you look at James Heckman, he's a, an economist, a Nobel uh, Prize winning economist from the University of Chicago. He's got, he developed an equation and we, it's the Heckman equation. You could just Google it. And it talks about the return on investment that impact investors will receive. Um, he looks at, you know, where like at what ages you're going to get the highest return on your investment and pre, if if you deliver an impact there you go <laughs> if you deliver an impact intervention to a preschooler you're going to have a much greater impact and and you're going to have a greater return on investment so they want to get you know especially low income minority um, at risk children when they're very young and they want to train them right. And, you know, then, so they'll start with preschool and this happens in Head, uh, Head Start and Educare. We have Educare here in Tulsa. And it then it translates into the primary and secondary school system. And then it's capped off by at the college or university level, which now they're even changing the language on that to describe it as post-secondary education. Wow. But yes, you're you're aligning skills, you're tracking skills, you're tracking personality traits from the time that these children are just barely out of the womb, you know? I mean, you can enroll in, in full-time preschool at six weeks here, you know, at, in Tulsa, and I'm sure that that's probably nationwide. But, you, you know, they have, like at Educare, we have surveillance play tables, these, and they're marketed to parents in terms of, oh, you know, this is greater security, um, you know, or you can 
access an app and you can watch your child to make sure that your child is playing and so that you can feel a part of his or her experience. Well, if I, you know, I would have believed that and I would not have questioned it until I started to dig around and you see, oh no, wait, these surveillance play tables with all of their software, what are they doing? They're looking to find what two-year-old it doesn't share, you know, and that's going to become part of that that child's permanent record. Wow. Um, you know, it's it's just such a trip because I've been researching conspiracy stuff for like 20 years and now it's so <laughs> in your face and so obvious and so sophisticated too. Um, one thing I've noticed um, in studying Agenda 21 in the United Nations is that these international programs and these programs that are furthered by tax-exempt foundations, which I really want to do a deep dive with you on, they come up with a predetermined outcome, a predetermined vision for how they believe society should be, how we should relate to one another, the role of government in everyone's lives, and also the industries that are going to flourish. And one great example of that is how you have these, these regional Agenda 21 environmental groups and planning groups and comprehensive plans. And when they come into a city, they don't develop infrastructure or public transportation based on market demand as it is. Rather, they leverage tax dollars and leverage their regulation and zoning in order to create predetermined outcomes. Like we have a desired growth zone on this part of town. And, you know, this so happens to be owned by probably some of the donors to the candidates, uh, to the, the politicians. But they the point that I'm trying to make is this whole um, this whole strategy that the powers that be utilizes isn't market based or based on what people genuinely want. It's based on predetermined outcomes. So when you say that these kids are being groomed, can you share what some of the industries are that they're being groomed for? And also, can you describe how you're seeing this shift in Tulsa, Oklahoma to uh, change, you know, what the, the predominant industries are in the area? Yeah. Um, you know, in 2014, there was a federal law, the Workforce, it's W-I-O-A, it's like Workforce Innovation Opportunity Act or something like this. Um, and, and that was a federal law that required states to come up with a state workforce development plan. And so this is, it's really trickling down from um from organizations like you mentioned, like the United Nations, um, you know, all kinds of, of big global uh, groups that have their vision of what our planet should look like. Uh, so states have come up with regional development plans. Um, areas within states have done the same. So there's, you know, this structure is mirrored, like from the, the broadest area down to the most specific. But they agree about uh, how to maximize um, efficiency in the production and consumption of goods and services. And and in Tulsa, we have like, well, in, in the state of Oklahoma, we have five sectors that are um, laid out in that workforce development plan. It's cybersecurity, healthcare, agriculture, um, aeronautical, um, engineering, and then what's the other, oh, finance. I think there's a small uh, 
finance sector. But, you know, at TU, we saw that they were changing the entire structure of the university um, to prepare students to go into like drone research and cybersecurity and healthcare. And so they really are controlling the supply of professions that are available. And if you, you know, if you ask the students and, you know, this is it, the example can be generalized to the, you know, voting public or, you know, to any kind of group that you'd like to, to consider. If you had asked the students what they wanted to major in, most of them didn't want to go into those fields. So, you know, they, on a, on a very personal level, you know, you had these young, young, I want to call them kids, that's the mom coming out of me, but, you know, these young people who had done their research, they had about what the university offered, um, and they made a choice that, that involved a substantial investment of time, of, of uh, finances, and, you know, and that precious year of being 18 and going off to college, they, they made that on the basis of what they thought they could accomplish on this older vision of what TU had to offer. But then that was just in an instant change. Why? Well, because we have social engineers who have, they have a workforce already developed, like a plan for a workforce already developed, and they don't want to other people to mess up that plan. So they're going to change you know, the supply um, of these goods. And what I think maybe an, another important thing to note is that, you know, these global groups, especially at the regional level, they talk about um, community engagement strategies. And they like to say, well, we've invited leaders from the, you know, nonprofit sector, from the business sector, from, you know, just people who live in these communities and will be affected by it. And we've consulted them and we've, we've conducted surveys. So they, you know, these predetermined solutions are marketed to those of us who are hearing them about them for the first time um, as they're marketed as the result of, of community conversations, but that's absolutely not what's going on. It's a scam. They use the Delphi technique, which is a you have a yeah. predetermined outcome and then you manipulate the group into accepting and acting as though it was their own idea. There's that one movie with um, it's called Inception, I think, where they go into their dreams and plant an idea kind of deal. That's what it is. But uh, but when you're awake and they do that with comprehensive planning as well and they have the nice little charts and go put your sticker on the area where you would like to see more growth or whatever and it's already it's already predetermined so there is um you know a long line of social engineers manipulators globalists that uh, have been at this for quite some time one of those big players one of those non-governmental organizations is the world economic forum and more recently they have launched what i see is just a marketing campaign for a lot of the stuff that's already been carried out they call it the great reset can you describe the great reset in your words and then let us know how it relates to what you've experienced at the Tulsa university yeah so you know because i got into the, into this you know um techno-fascist 
research or re research on techno fashion through education. You know, when what education is a prime data harvesting sector, and they do that through ed tech, through screen, um, through interactions that occur through a screen, like we're doing right now, because it it there's always a data footprint. So I had been thinking about these these things, and I, and I had looked into Oklahoma's healthcare plan because that's one of our um, our work our target industries for the for our workforce development plan. So I'd been sort of paying attention to health and and the move to telemedicine, and then also education technology. So you know when all of the COVID stuff happened, I thought, oh my goodness, we are exactly where the social engineers want us to be. We're on the screen all the time. Um, everything is going that way and it can be tracked and traced. Uh, so, you know, some of my tr truther friends and I, we were all going this. And then the World Economic Forum comes out and says, we're gonna have a great reset of society, of everything that you have ever, you know, thought about human life, the human condition, we're going to change it. And it's going to be, you know, based on environmental, social governance outcomes that are in the interest of all. You're right. It's a complete marketing strategy. Um, what they're doing is they're selling us technocracy and they're saying, we have this crisis that showed our vulnerability. And now we need, because everything is a big mess, we need to take this historic opportunity to intervene deliberately um, to make the world a better place. But it's not going to make the world a better place. It's going to trap us in our homes. It's going to imprison us. Everyone's going to work remotely. Everyone's going to be surveilled. And, you know, the these World Economic Forum necromancers, that's what I call them, lovers of death. <laughs> you know? Good one. Yeah, they're going to, you know, invest in our human capital futures. It's really awful. It's really awful. Yeah, it's a trip. And um, the Great Reset is pretty... I always... Obviously, I'm against all of their stuff, but I always kind of step back as a marketing guy myself and as someone that tries to be effective in my work and efficient i always am in awe of how well these groups are doing at their rollouts and how much how much power they have and the universities have always been one of those power centers where they are in in control i just wanted to read for a sec from uh this this article here on uh, forbes magazine it's uh it's pretty pretty damning if you haven't seen it yet Oops, let me zoom in here. And it was written in uh, 2016. Welcome to 2030. I own nothing, have no privacy, and life has never been better. And it was put out by the World Economic Forum, the ones that are bringing us the Great Reset. Welcome to the year 2030. Welcome to my city, or should I say our city. I don't own anything. I don't own a car. I don't own a house. I don't own any appliances or any clothes. may seem odd to you, but it makes perfect sense for us in this city. Everything you considered a product has now become a service. We have access to transportation, accommodation, food, and all things we need in our daily lives. One by one, all these things became free, so it ended up not making sense for us to own much. And this is like some weird dystopian future, and they have the ability, they do this really well, where they create this wonderful veneer where 
oh, it's so nice and it's for the environment and for future generations and equity. But in reality, like you said, it's it's hardcore techno fascists. And yeah. all of a sudden, everyone to think that the oligarchs all of a sudden really care about the little guys, pretty nonsensical. Um, speaking of oligarchs, a lot of folks in, in my community, my audience are well aware of the Rockefeller Foundation and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and the role that they play in carrying out this big, great reset and this, these big changes we see. Can you talk about how tax exempt foundations in general are influencing and changing, shaping society? And then specifically, I think there was a Kaiser Foundation or someone that you came across doing a lot of stuff there in uh, in Tulsa. Can you talk about the role that these tax exempt foundations play in carrying this stuff out? Sure. Well, I think you know Rockefeller has always had his hand in you know a globalist agenda and you know in the united nations he donated a ton of money to it mm -hmm. um gates you know we all know what gates is involved in with uh sepi and gavi and id 2020 and and he was a common core proponent from way back so they you know you have these um very well-endowed organizations that aren't responsible to anyone except themselves uh, who have a vision for society and and they're implementing it without asking us if we want it or not. And I think um, how, like why they're able to do that is because um, human beings are generally trusting and we generally want to do well by other people. I mean, there's market research that shows this, that shows that our desire to do good is a very powerful motivator. In fact, it's supposed to be more powerful um, than, than uh, uh, financial motivation. So, you know, we trust these organizations and they know that and they market to us their programs as, as doing something good and we believe them. But um, what they're really doing is they're taking away people's ability to make decisions for themselves. And they're also, I think, proliferating a view of poor people um, as stupid people or incapable people. So you have like, if you look at the marketing materials on say, you know, some Rockefeller Foundation, um, you know, uh, annual report or something like this, it, 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 it's kind of, I mean, I think it's sort of condescending. Um, they're going to go in and fix people and they don't have to pay any taxes on their, their um, benefits from those programs. So the way that they're going to fix people is going to be in a manner that's going to serve the interests of that foundation and its corporate interests and its for-profit interests. Because all of these foundations... Um, you know, they have huge hedge funds that are that have financial stakes in uh, program related investments. And that's legal. I, you know, I don't know the ins and outs of it, but it's legal to have program related investments in for profit enterprises. So, you know, Rockefeller could be I think he's taken all of his money out of oil right now and is putting it in solar and things like this. But, you know, you're. So he's gonna he could invest in for-profit 
um, entities and he could make a financial return on that. And as long as that return goes into this, you know, Rockefeller Foundation nonprofit account, uh, then he doesn't have to pay any capital gains on it or whatever. But, you know, there is the benefit to these foundations um, in terms of having access to the data. So they're shaping people who are going to um, have the values that are conducive to, um, to their financial gain, right? So to Rockefeller's financial gain. We're making people that are going to support his the enterprises that he's invested in. Um, maybe enterprises that he doesn't have to pay taxes on because they're per, they're invested through the foundation fund. And then, you know, he's also, well, what was the third thing I said? I said something else, but yeah, anyway, they're, they're using the front of philanthropy and benevolence and human you know, compassion and goodness, really to serve their own, like, ideological and financial ends. And, mm -hmm. and really, you know, in this great reset economy, like, think about the fourth industrial revolution, everything's going to be automated, right? Like, so many people are going to lose work through, you know, automated delivery systems, and, you know, not having bank tellers, and, you know, so many sectors of the economy are just going to, and the, and the workforce are going to be obliterated. So how are, you know, what are you going to do with all of the, you know, people like the cronies, like, you know, how are you, like, what would, um, how are the change agents going to be employed in, in that four IR economy? Well, you have to create, a nonprofit industrial complex to give them an income to keep them loyal to you. And you don't want to pay taxes on it um, because, you know, it's this new resource-based economy. So you just create tons and tons of subsidiary nonprofits and you just move money around to reward your friends and, and you know, hedge your, all of your investments. Yeah, I noticed a lot of a lot of human action, especially with powerful elite types, is driven by money and greed. But then many of them reach this pinnacle of wealth where they have so much money they can't possibly do anything or manage it all. They put in these tax exempt foundations, and it seems like they switch their desire from accumulating wealth to controlling people, like this weird yeah. egotistical, megalomaniacal phenomenon where they're like, yes, we reached this wonderful pinnacle of society. We're at the top. Now, what else can we do to kind of get our rocks off, so to speak, part, yeah. of, part of that? But that's what I see some of these these pretty sick people. Um, what role, so you mentioned uh, the Kaiser Foundation in one of your other interviews, and then you were talking about how they essentially usurped the, universe, the Tulsa University and kind of have a pretty have their tentacle pretty deep into the university. Is that the case? Yeah. So it's the George Kaiser Family Foundation. Okay. Um, and he's an oil man. He's involved or he's invested in um, technology. So oil man, banker, tech investor. And he's active in Texas too. I mean, all over. Mm -hmm. um, about, I think, when was it? 
let's see, we're under, right around uh, 2009, I think he started being very active or his foundation started being very active in the affairs of, of the University of Tulsa, which is a private university. But, um, but George Kaiser, he owns Bank of Oklahoma and that's where uh, TU's $1.1 billion endowment was held. I mean, George Kaiser sort of owns Tulsa, the whole city, really. Um, and you have to have, like, for these foundations to accomplish their social engineering goals, they have to sort of, they have to trust wash it. So they have to get someone to legitimize the the changing that they're doing and that's you know usually through a university or it could be a hospital and it or these nonprofits that are created um because the public does trust them and they think oh these these are scientists or these are academics or people who care about teaching and learning and you know they're going to do impartial um research right so it is to the benefit of of social impact investors who are running um, social impact pilot programs to have the universe, some university brand behind it. And how do you take over a university? Well, you, you know, engage in some crony capitalism and you put important people who are loyal to you on the board of, of this institution. So, you know, Jacob Howland, who was a professor of philosophy at Tulsa for decades, um, he wrote an article in The Nation, and the title of that article is Corporate Wolves in Academic Sheepskins, and it's got a picture of George Kaiser right on the front of it. Now, very few people in Tulsa ever saw that article, um, and there are several other articles that explain some of the connections, like the, you know, crony capitalism. But yeah, you stack the board, you find, you appoint people to faculty positions who are going to be loyal to the foundation or to the business interests that are served by it, rather than the objective of teaching and learning. And you, you reward them. And if you look, there you go. If you look at Oklahoma's plan for education, and every state has one of these, we have the One Oklahoma Plan, and it talks about developing a branding strategy for a university that is going to align with, you know, uh, the Workforce Development Plan, which is really, you know, I mean, that's not a, a state-developed plan. That's a plan developed by the globalists and the foundations that back them. Um, so you're going to find, you're going to brand universities and schools to support that workforce development plan. And then you're also going to have a, a targeted hire, uh, um, hiring policy for faculty and administrators. And it, this is collective impact at its best. Um, collective impact is how you make sure that everyone is speaking the same language, everyone has the same goals, and they're going to all um, walk, row in unison, so to speak. But yeah, you do. You have to get a university involved to legitimize some of these whacked out, you know, programs that they're going to do. And I found out that 
it was in Tulsa, it was like in 2005 that we developed a P20 task force. So a task force aimed at aligning, you know, workforce development outcomes from uh, preschool through PhD. So, you know, TU was kind of like the takeover of TU was like the capstone here. And, you know, if you look at our state universities, there we have uh, University of Oklahoma and then Oklahoma State, and those have been infiltrated as well. And, you know, you mentioned University of Texas. They're, you know, especially their public policy um, or public administration department, you know, they're doing the same things. I mean, I, you know, when I started looking into higher education and I thought, oh gosh, every single university is introducing a new five-year plan. It's all at the same time. It's all in, you know, preparation for this great reset. Everyone's realigning their university structures. And, and, you know, the University of Texas at Austin was doing it too. And I was really in disbelief because, you know, UT has such a great reputation. I thought, why, why would you get into this ugly business of, you know, utilitarian workforce training? Yeah. That's what they do. And it's not only coming from the tax exempt foundations, but it's also coming from the big globalist programs. And of course, World Economic Forum's Great Reset is one of those. Another big one is Agenda 21, which has since been expanded and rebranded to Agenda 2030 or the 2030 Agenda. And I noticed how Austin is one of these big cities. Sounds like Tulsa is as well. And the way what what a lot of these people are doing these groups is they're doing like an end run around the national government or oftentimes mm-hmm. the state government but sometimes the national and state government goes along with it but when they don't they simply circumvent those levels and go straight to the local level and mm-hmm. like in 21 they have the international council of local environmental initiatives which does mm-hmm. fundings and sister city programs right so uh, can you, uh, like you did with Great Reset, can you give us your understanding of Agenda 2030, what it's all about, and how it fits in to this reshaping of society? Yeah, well, and I would say, you know, Agenda 21, I mean, I call it that, it, the 2030 Agenda is just really an elaboration of Agenda 21, and it spells out the 17 Sustainable Development Goals, but it's all really the same thing. Um you know, that's a UN program. It was uh, developed in ni- 1992, the Rio Earth Summit is where that program was first articulated. But, you know, the UN and the World Economic Forum are official partners in, in you know, restructuring our world. So I think it's helpful to think of these, of Agenda 21 and the Great Reset as being practically the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's different and, marketing programs. Yes, they are. They're different marketing programs, but they have this official partnership and they're going to use the same terms. Um, you know, one is probably speaks to the left a little bit more and one probably speaks to the right a little bit more, but ultimately left and right break down in this in technocracy anyway. Um, but yes, they have what's called a bottom-up approach to policy making. And what was, you know, really f- interesting about like Tulsa is that 
you know, now the interim president of, of our, of the university, her name is Janet Levitt. Well, her husband, Ken Levitt, is the CEO of the George Kaiser Family Foundation. But Janet Levitt wrote an article, a law review article called Bottom Up International Lawmaking. Wow. You know, it's right there. It's not like these people are hiding it. They're, they're doing it. But a bottom up strategy is, you know, to look at city councils, look at regional um, economic development councils and transform society through a set of regulations. And yeah, they're going to, you know, come into Midwestern cities and to small city, you know, then the big cities too, of course, they're on board. And, you know, they're just going to start small and work their way out in, you know, in instituting walkability programs and public transportation programs, public health, community policing. And it's important to say all of those things are things that a lot of us would want anyway. I mean, I think it would be cool to be able to walk to work and not have to get in the car. But, you know, do I want to be forced to do that? Yeah, to not have a choice. Right. And they're taking control. away. Yeah, they're taking away all of the choices. And, you know, what this is something that I, po I posted about today. Smart Growth America is one of these organizations, a, you know, large organization that ha takes a bottom-up approach. Mm -hmm. And they, they posted an article that is about, you know, we need to uh, – we need to encourage people to drive less mm -hmm. by, you know, limiting our access to large highways and parking spaces. Yes. And we need to have you pull in backwards on this very limited amount of space and a very busy road because we yeah. have sidewalks and now there's bike lanes. And it's like, yeah, that's all great, but I still want to drive my automobile. I don't want to hop on a bus. My time's valuable. I got kids, you know, and yeah. you, have an you don't want to be trapped in a surveillance smart city, you know? Yeah, and then they can shut off your ability to access the public transportation if you don't have the COVID vaccine, for example, exactly. or if your social credit score dips beneath a certain number, or if you're not up to date on other vaccines, which is how this is all panning out. Um, there's actually a proposition right now, a big mobility bond in the city of Austin that'll increase taxes immensely, but they want to roll out this Agenda 21 style transportation changes. And again, it's not going to be, there's a bunch of employment here and there's a bunch of people that live in this sub suburb of Austin. So let's get them in a little easier to ease congestion. It's we have desired growth zones. We want to disincentive, disincentivize driving. Um, it's a, it's a total ploy and it happens all around. I want to read from this essay that came to mind. I referenced it uh, recently in a great reset video I did, but you mentioned how it's bottom up and how these globalists uh, have shifted their strategy away from the obvious and putting, putting it out exactly what they're doing and going to have a Senate treaty passed, for example, which didn't happen with agenda 21 and 92, but it's this essay called uh, the hard road to world order by mm -hmm. Parker out of the Foreign Affairs Magazine, 1974. This guy was with CFR, Trilateral Commission, and Bilderberg Group, he's a classic globalist, but he talks about the difficulties that they were having in bringing out their global government. He says, in short, the house of world order will have to be built from the bottom up rather than from the top down. It will look like a great booming buzzing confusion, William James's famous description of reality, 
but an end run around national sovereignty, eroding it piece by piece, will accomplish much more than the old-fashioned frontal assault. And I think that really just ties in with with what it is you're talking about. about. Yeah, you know, we have in Oklahoma, our state rolled out a new branding program, and we have a, now it's, it's a state logo and it look it's the UN color wheel. It's a rendition of it. And it's got a star in the middle. Um, and I think that what we're going to see is that states, I mean, and I think, I mean, I really think this is going to happen in the next couple of years. Um, states are going to be transitioned to these brands, like a regional brand for ecotourism or whatever. And they're, they're going to lose any of their, um, you know, actual power to represent constituents, you know? So, I mean, there, we can look at it like, you know, I think for people who are suspicious of government, they might say, oh, well, it's good to get rid of another layer of it. But, you know, the states are probably our best protection right now against both tyrannical uh, mayors and then also an overreaching fit. So that's why, you know, these globalists are going to go after the states and we're going to, you know, as the economy is just wrecked and states are going to lose so much of their revenue, sales tax revenue, all kinds of, you know, corporate taxes, um, and they're going to be bankrupt, then that is a a perfect opportunity for these nonprofit philanthropic organizations to come in and say, well, you know, state of Oklahoma you can't, you can't fund this, but we'll give you a grant and we'll pay for public education. We'll deliver this service. And, you know, people have been pushed to desperation and they're going to say, okay, you know, we, we've got to educate our kids and they're going to do that, not knowing what's behind it, that it's a huge data grab. Um, so yeah, I think the booming and the buzzing that is mentioned in that article that you point out, that's the corona apocalypse. That's why I call it COVID. That's the corona apocalypse. That we're so distracted that we're not even aware of the fact that our state governments are, you know, they're losing power enormously. It's being transformed. And I, you know, I subscribe to a book of ours, which is, um, it's a blog and it's a, uh, some artists who make really great videos about this technocratic takeover. And they've got a video called Deconstruction. And it talks about um, the dissolution of state governments. And it's really, I would recommend it to anyone. Um, you know, they do this for free because they care and their information is, is spot on. So people need to be watching out for this. And yeah, I mean, if the if the the social engineers are can find, they're going to look for the spot of the weakest link, you know, and they're going to attack it. And sometimes that shifts. So we always we need to be vigilant about where they're targeting things. And I think right now it's definitely the state governments. Yeah, I can see that the states um, have historically had quite a bit of authority to do things. I know Oklahoma, for example, uh, has passed some legislation regarding the 10th Amendment, 
And so the states have a lot of authority to push back on the federal government and even in Texas. So I always wanted government to be as localized as possible, right? As close mm -hmm. to the person as possible. But I don't have a problem with the state of Texas, which is Republican controlled, getting in and intervening when the city of Austin goes a little bit too far left or communist in some of their policies, like a plastic bag ban, for example. But yeah, that's a that's a good note to uh, to understand that the states uh, do have some power to to push back, especially conservative states. Like, look what South Dakota is doing against all the COVID nonsense. Um, that's pretty powerful stuff. Let's. Um, I would like to wrap up here pretty soon, but before we do, I know that you wanted to uh, talk about impact investing. Can you describe how impact investing is another one of these tools that is being utilized to carry out this great reset? Sure. Well, it's really. You know, it, what impact investing is, is it is um, corporate, it's corporate responsibility. It is, you know, billionaires, hedge funds, um, you know, commercial corporate investors putting money into environmental, social and governance goals. And these goals align with the UN Sustainable Development Goals. And they sound good, you know. They mm -hmm. it sounds good. To it all have, sounds great. It it all sounds so nice until you learn the language, and then you're horrified every day. You're like, no. Um, but what impact investing does is it looks at the value of of investments or programs to all stakeholders in a community. Stakeholders is one of those big terms. Exactly. So they're they're saying, you know, it's time for corporations to be mindful of the little guy. It's time for us to care about our planet. And so we're going to do this by ensuring that, say, our supply chain is uh, is operated with a concern for reducing carbon emissions. Mm -hmm. OK, so and they're going to say this is a good that. Um, that is for the whole community, right? Um, but what impact, or let me see if I could give another example of it. Um, you know, you could invest in educational outcomes and say, well, if I give this much money to the school district and their test scores go up, you know, that's going to help the entire community. It's going to reduce like future uh, costs of, um, incarceration, things like that. So impact investing is designed to accomplish positive social in, uh, outcomes for the community as a whole and reduce costs and, uh, you know, gain uh, some kind of profit to the investor. And I think that profit is, is sometimes it's a financial profit and other times it's in terms of control and just reworking things. But in the 4IR New World Order economy, when we're all broke, how are the hedge funds going to turn a profit? How are they going to move capital in that situation when, you know, you have a third of the global workforce unemployed and unemployable? How are they going to do it? Well, it's through impact investing and pay for success contracts. So, you know, guys like Sir Ronald Cohen of he's of the UK and Michael Bloomberg, you know, our own Michael Bloomberg, who works with mayors a lot. Mm -hmm. um, George Kaiser, 
Bill Gates, uh, Rockefeller, they're all moving toward impact investing and they came up with social impact bonds, social impact finance, paper success contracts. Those are all basically the same thing. Um, these are financial mechanisms that, that create um, a contract between the government and some social service provider to deliver specific outcomes. And those outcomes are the ESG outcomes, the UN Sustainable Development Goal outcomes. Um, when, say, our state government is broke and Rockefeller Foundation comes in and says, well, we'll help, we'll, we'll invest in educational outcomes in Oklahoma. Um, we'll, we'll front the money to you to administer these programs and we'll do it through a nonprofit. Uh, then it, we'll, we'll do that, says Rockefeller Foundation, if the government will agree to reimburse those costs for us. Um, and the government says, well, why would we decide to do that? And Rockefeller Foundation says, well, because we're going to guarantee these certain outcomes. And then the government and the foundation will agree on the outcomes. So that's the success, paying for the success. Well, that contract, a pay-for-success contract in which the government and a private investor, through intermediaries, they agree to be partners, P3s, in the delivery of social services, that contract becomes an asset, like a, fi you know, a financial asset. And you can, um, you can attach derivatives to that asset, wow. futures, you know, so you can, and that's how, you know, in the new world order economy, that's how hedge funds are going to hmm. move capital. They're going to, you know, take out options on these, on these favors exist contracts. So imagine the more, like the housing crisis of 2008. It's the same model, except that here we're dealing with human behavioral outcomes. We're betting on um, children's lives, really. And, you know, another excellent, excellent source of information. My friend Allison McDowell writes the blog wrenchinthegears.com. And she is the expert on pay-for-success finance. So I found out about, you know, the pay-for-success contracts and how that relates to ed tech and surveillance capitalism and all this by looking at her article um, called uh, Shorting the Lives of Children. And it's about Tulsa, Oklahoma. And it's chilling. It is, I felt physically ill for about four days wow. after reading it. But blog is hands down um, the best source and she just tore up Naomi Klein yesterday so so if you can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Naomi Klein you know you're worth reading and that's her yeah but so without if people don't understand how pay for success works then they're not going to understand how COVID um, relates to the new world order economy because this has nothing to do with public health it has everything to do with speculating on human behavioral outcomes through a risk management strategy of tracking and tracing all of us, figuring out who we are, and then tweaking us to fit their interests. And they'll do that as long as we provide some 
value to them. But as soon as we can be replaced by a robot, then bye-bye, see you later. Wow. It's really sinister. Yeah, it's terrible. Yeah, it's nuts. And it's just crazy to think that they're going to have these markets that will incentivize investors and hedge funds to help bring about these outcomes. So there's a lot of a lot of different angles and a lot of different aspects to this whole takeover. And it's really accelerated quite a bit. Um, and I just want to point out, I've got one more question for you before we let you go. But Again, when you read through the sustainable development goals, for example, or the Great Reset, a lot of the terminology seems like it would be a wonderful thing. But when you dig, when you peel a layer back and you see through this veil of, of uh, philanthropy and of selflessness, really what it is all about is control and hurting humans into compact cities where it's like a panopticon society and the social score that we see having been rolled out in communist China is already slowly but surely being implemented here in the States. So always keep that in mind when you're reading through some of this stuff and you're like, oh, that actually sounds like that's a pretty laudable goal. There's this extra level of control and tyranny, which I believe is they want to create an environment where the elite can stay in power forever and have access to the radical life extension technology and all that stuff. And we yeah. keep everyone from, uh, they want to stop people from being able to overthrow them at all. And the best way to do that is through total control and a dramatic reduction in the number of human beings on earth, which yeah. is another goal of Agenda 21. But um, well, yeah, you know, if you look at pay for success, I'm sorry, I know you want to wrap it up, no, but ahead. it's a it is a poverty management strategy. Mm. So when you think about all of all of us being displaced from our employment, you know, we're going to be. I mean, look at Syria. You know, that's mm -hmm. that's what we're all going to be like. And in the United States, we still have weapons. You know, some of us have, still have weapons. And we're, you know, I think we're forced to be reckoned with. And that's why I think we're not seeing the level of oppression here currently as other places in the world are seeing it. Because if you look at Australia, if you look at Wales, if you look at all these other places, they are under siege. And it's not happening to us yet because we still have, you know, some weapons and you know uh, other defenses but you know th so they're waiting for this complete 5g rollout but what pay for success does and digital combined with digital blockchain identity is it's, po it's poverty management um, of us because you like you said you won't be able to get on the bus if you haven't complied with so many requirements you won't be able to buy food you won't be able to do any of that. And you're going to be so busy with lifelong learning to be retrained, you know, mm -hmm. for whatever stupid gig job they have available, yeah. that there's no way that anyone can rebel. So you're absolutely right. It's totally about control. Yeah. I want to finish on solutions. And by the way, when you mentioned Allison McDowell, I, I was curious if it was the same woman. I saw a video. It actually came up in the YouTube queue right after yours. So at least YouTube's oh, algorithm is still me some knowledge. But it was, uh, it was called Who Voted in Davos? Blockchain Government Smart Cities. It was a really powerful presentation. She was really hammering it. And the way that she delivered it was like kind of fun and really high energy. 
but I thought it was interesting that she referred to the whole COVID thing as like a pre-contrived thing, you know, pandemic, right? She didn't use the word pandemic. And then I guess they were doing it to a university group or something. And the woman that was facilitating it piped in and kind of got offended that she dare would have said the COVID thing was contrived. But I really appreciated how homegirl defended herself and just stuck with it. Um, I'll share that link in the show notes. And uh, thank you for turning me on to her, her blog. Um, before we wrap up, I want to talk about solutions. I maybe should have left more time for this, but on this program, we cover the problem, which a lot of people do, but more importantly, we lay into what are we going to do about it, right? So people aren't just disillusioned in a state of fear and panic. And one of the things that we're aiming to do, we created the Freedom Cell Network back in 2014, 2015, which Lisa Bowman's actually the one that introduced me to your work. And she's an amazing activist and just a powerhouse, really. But uh, we have over 5,000 people globally, and one of our goals is to create a network where if the technocracy shuts us out, we just go about life as usual because we've already been trading amongst ourselves and traveling together, and we have little trade routes, and we have the naturopath and even a surgeon within the network that can that can support us, and we have our own health share program. So that's one solution that I like to encourage people to do uh, if they're concerned about the growth of technocracy. What are some takeaways or some action items or some things that people can do, in, in your opinion, to insulate themselves from this, to protect themselves from this, and to hopefully try to you know, shift the momentum away from this centralization and tyranny towards decentralization and more liberty? Yeah, well, I mean, I think the Freedom Cell Project is, that's absolutely critical, you know, um, and we have to, we're going to have to take care of each other. And mm -hmm. it, you don't have to like each other, but to take care of each other. <laughs> but on a sort of like practical level, I think, you know, the fact that this uh, is uh, coming to be through a bottom-up strategy actually gives us some advantages. So, you know, the, the folks who are, you know, signing off on the regulations or the zoning laws or whatever that are that are making this happen. They're our neighbors, you know, and I think people have to really get scrappy. Like you know, those of us who don't want to live in a in a black mirror episode, you get scrappy and you remind those city councils, those business leaders, um, the people at the Chamber of Commerce, hey, you're going to have to see me. Mm -hmm. You're going to have to, we're still going to live together for a while and we know what's going on and you embarrass them, you shame them, you know, if, if they won't listen to reason, I might obviously try to educate and persuade first, sure, but, you first. Know, there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of pride and money and, you know, other things that are going to make it hard for people to look at some of their own decisions and say, oh no, that really was a bad thing. Um, and so sometimes we're, I think you're just going to have, we're going to have to get in people's faces and say, we know what's happening and we're not going to get out of your driveway <laughs> until you change it, you know, whatever, follow the laws. You nice. Know. I like the book. But I think that's what you can do. And you, and you stop using the services. Mm -hmm. So, um, and you know, people who are tech savvy, like maybe there's a way to build in some kind of data protection so that, mm -hmm. you know, we're not sharing all of our data, but 
you know, I don't think we can roll back all of this, but, you know, there are ways to fight it. And these are not creative people. That's how you can pick out all of their buzzwords. They're, these are kind of, they're systems thinkers. So I think a strategy through the arts that really taps into like our most human elements, you know, Mm -hmm. that's going to be crucial. Educating your kids to hate tyranny that's really crucial. Developing faith networks, crucial. And then embarrassing public policy leaders who, you know, are just chasing a buck or the next free dinner at the regional chamber of commerce. Mm-hmm. You know, like that. It's like they have, they have Antifa, Antifa, right? The anti-fascist. We can have the anti-techno fa, the yeah. antifa or whatever. We're against the robots. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, well, it's been a real pleasure uh, talking to you, and I'm just really uh, in awe by the depth of your knowledge. I can tell that you're an intellectual, and I'm I'm glad, even though, you know, you're not with Tulsa University, you have that professor air about you where oh, you can <laughs> help educate us and really get down into the weeds, which a lot of people uh, don't have all that knowledge. And it really is really important if we are to counter this to understand how they're operating, understand their playbook and their strategies so we can find weaknesses and exploit those weaknesses. So uh, Julianne, thank you so much for joining us today on the Live Free Now show. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. All right. You take care. There you have it, folks. This has been Live Free Now. Once again, bringing you news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Today, we talked to Julianne Romanello about technocracy, the Great Reset, and how these uh, strategies, how these big changes are being rolled out at the local level through tax-exempt foundations, through educational pipelines, through impact investing, and all sorts of crazy stuff. So we really have our work cut out for us, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, you can check out Freedom Cells at freedomcells.org. You can learn more about the Great Reset and technocracy in the show notes. Thank you for tuning in once again. This is John Bush. I'm out. Peace and freedom. Peace.